Welcome to Feed the Feminine, a podcast dedicated to reviving archetypal feminine qualities in a masculine-dominated culture. I'm your host, Vanessa Sedaticato, a psychotherapist and writer empowering clients and readers to nourish their feminine while also repairing what's been damaged in its long-standing cultural repression. Join me each episode as we talk about the archetypes present in how we eat, express, and relate, and what we can do to find meaning and reach balance. On this episode, I'm discussing the disconnect between veterans and civilians, both conscious and unconscious, plus how civilians can better serve those who have served. As always, before we dive in, a quick disclaimer. The information provided here is intended to convey general information only and does not intend to replace or infer proper psychological diagnosis. No therapist-client relationship is implied or actualized through any contact with this podcast, website, or its creators unless formally agreed upon in a proper clinical setting. And now, without further ado, here's this week's episode of the Feed the Feminine podcast. So last week I talked about moral injury, and there was a reason that I put that episode right before this one, and it's because the folks uh, in our country, in our world, that I believe most suffer from an intense degree of moral injury are our military veterans. And so I wanted you to have a little bit of a basic idea of what that actually means so that we can really apply that in this episode. Um, but there's there's so much more than that uh, when we're talking about military ve- veterans. And so if you're willing to stick with me, I will take you where we are meant to go, which is to just have a conversation as civilians. I'm assuming many of my listeners are civilians, just based on the pure statistics of <laughs> veterans and civilians in this country, um, and the ways that we can better show up for for military service members and veterans, and why that's even important if if it's not already clear. Um, I am a civilian. I obviously don't speak for all service members and veterans. There are exceptions to everything that I'm about to say. And yet I do feel a responsibility to use my civilian voice and the insight that I have into the military experience to share what seems to be weighing on the hearts and minds of so many veterans who might be struggling to transition back into the world that we know. So just a little bit of background I've worked with veterans for a while now, mostly in a clinical setting, and most of the veterans that I work with are are that population, the population that's struggling to reintegrate back into the civilian world. And when they're struggling to reacclimate to civilian life, there's a high prevalence of there being mental and emotional distress, substance use, and potentially homelessness. But before we really get too far into that, I just want to rewind a little bit. So when we talk about feminine and masculine, We're talking about yin and yang, right? We're not talking about gender. It's about archetypal energy that is shared amongst all of humanity. So the terminology of feminine and masculine doesn't imply behavior locked into gender roles. So the feminine isn't about being dainty or frilly or dressed in pink or being a damsel in distress. Just the same as masculine isn't about being tough or macho or having a nice car or being tall or crushing beer cans on your head or whatever oversimplified and or misguided gender expectations we have when it comes to men. Feminine traits in this archetypal sense are nurturance, creativity, spirituality, vulnerability, imagination, non-linear ways of approaching things, being still being connected to nature, being empathic and emotionally in tune. Whereas masculine is about reason and logic, linear ways of thinking, doing and taking action, structure, boundaries, protection, acquisition. 
Everybody is dominant in either masculine or feminine. The perfect balance hardly exists. And even when you strike it, you got to keep maintaining it. Women do tend to be naturally more empathic and vulnerable. And men do naturally tend to be more based in logic and action. But there are exceptions to this. And more exceptions to this, I think, than we realize. And part of that is because the additional socializing on top of this reinforces those traits. So when little girls are given play school kitchen sets and little boys are given monster trucks, we're doubling down on it, right? Little girls are taught to, here, have a baby to raise. <laughs> you know, that's how, we, that's how we tell little girls to play. Cook something in the kitchen and raise the baby. And then the boys, they get monster trucks and cop cars and fire trucks and they get to do the cool stuff. They get to be heroes, right? In all things, there is a light and a shadow. The light is what is loved and accepted and honored, whereas the shadow is the part that's disowned, the parts of ourselves that we don't like, that we can't accept. Humans have a light and shadow. Archetypes have a light and shadow. All things have a light and shadow. And the traits that I listed for feminine and masculine just a second ago, those are the light traits, the good ones, the positive ones, the beloved ones. The shadow traits for the feminine take the light traits and, for lack of a better word, kind of ick them up a little bit. So compassion turns into apathy. Vulnerability turns into codependency. Nurturance turns into control. Collaborative communication turns into passive aggression. Intimacy turns into emotional intimidation. Imagination turns into judgment. And the masculine shadow we'll get to in a second. But when there, when there isn't balance between feminine and masculine, yin and yang, when one dominates for too long, and those traits are the only traits that are valued by any sort of system, a family system, a smaller community, a larger culture or society at large, that's when we head into shadow territory. And by the way, not just communities, but also within ourselves. When, when one is dominating for too long, it's, the extremes start to separate and then we go into shadow territory. So when we look at it from our cultural level as Americans and, and dissect a little bit of what it, what, what it means that we live in a patriarchy, the light masculine traits in American culture unchecked by the feminine traits because we repress the feminine traits we call them unnecessary we call them silly weak lazy the light traits go dark leadership which is a trait of the masculine light it turns into narcissism which is a trait of the masculine shadow acquisition turns into greed and theft boundaries turn into force curiosity turns into exploitation protection turns into violence and war. So when you consider the mission of the military, you're likely to think of masculine shadow traits. And this isn't the fault of the military because by virtue of its mission and purpose, it has to be that. It is representative of masculine shadow or it's a result of it or it's both. Because war in the sense that we know and understand it, it's not about nurturance and imagination and vulnerability. It's about protection and acquisition and logic and remaining level-headed. Basic training is meant to undo empathy and emotionality from its participants. Otherwise, they will not be able to carry out their mission. And that could mean death. So America is already a culture in excess of masculine traits. And I've talked about that in other episodes, and I'll continue to talk about it. So if you've got questions, bring it. Let's keep having this conversation. But then the military sees that masculine culture and raises it. $693 billion, which is our Department of Defense spending. 
Part of the reason I wanted to discuss the way civilians interact with veterans is because of my experience working with veterans in a social work setting. The men that I work with are all men in the facility. Most of them are veterans of the OIF-OEF era. That means they have fought in either Operation Iraqi Freedom or Operation Enduring Freedom, or both. Um, Operation New Dawn is also included in that. Those are the most recent wars that we've been fighting for almost 20 years in this country. Uh, Some of these men separated from the military years ago. Some a little bit more recently, but they've all been impacted by the current wars that America finds itself in. And in my work with them, I get to really understand what they're struggling with. We can put on paper that it's substance abuse and trauma-related behavioral issues and, you know, stuff relating to their combat experience, which led them to become homeless and incarcerated and any combination of that, right? But I challenge us to look a little bit deeper and see the, the cultural ways in which we might be perpetuating that for them. Even before I started working with veterans in a clinical capacity, I was volunteering for an organization called Soldiers Angels, and I've been with them for like a decade, and essentially acting as a pen pal, sending letters and care packages to active duty service members who were deployed and away from their families. And the intention was to remind those in active duty that civilians didn't forget about them, that we cared about them and wanted to support them the best we could from a distance. I personally have always been intrigued by the military in the sense that I have felt a responsibility to service members as a civilian. My grandfather fought in World War II. My grandmother was a nurse in the United States Navy. My uncle was also in the Navy. I've I've had friends in the Army and the Marine Corps. And I wouldn't say that my life was ever really impacted by their service directly, but I was adjacent to their experiences enough that it compelled me and it made me curious about why different wars seem to solicit different responses from civilians to service members over the years. Um, Like World War II veterans were hailed as heroes. Vietnam veterans were spat on when they came home. Um, And I get the the political turmoil. You know, the Vietnam came with a a lot of political division about, you know, what we were doing over there and and what the whole point of that was. But that wasn't the, the fault of the service members, especially in a situation where people were being drafted. And so it always confused me why they were taking the hit for what their politicians and their leaders and the people more powerful than them were were doing the harm that they were doing themselves. I think sometimes we project our anger, the anger that we have for our government onto those in the military, as though they have made the choice to go to war. And some people say, well, they didn't make the choice to go to war, but they made the choice to join the military and take orders that go against, you know, what's what's right, what's morally right. And I think that it's easy to cast that stone from the outside of that experience. But when I think about experiences that I've had in my life, uh, there were a lot of times where I signed up for something thinking that I knew what it would be like. And then I got inside of it and I was like, oh, damn, uh, is it too late for me to back out of this? Because this is not what I thought this was at all. And I think that is sometimes the case for our (laughs) military service members who, you know, a recruiter sells you a dream and tells you that they'll get you out of the bad situation that you're in. They'll help you financially for college later on in your life. Uh, and you'll be a hero. Just go put on the uniform. And then what happens in reality is much different than that. A lot of people enlist in the military for, for righteous reasons, because they want to do good, especially the OIF, OEF generation of veterans. They joined Some of them joined in direct response to September 11th, wanting to defend our country. Some people join the military because their life up until that point has just been a series of traumas, 
And the military seems like the only place in the world that makes any sense to them. The only place in the world where they would maybe have anything to offer. And I think some people, yeah, join the military because they don't want to ruin their lives with student debt. And so they're like, if I can get some help with school after this, yeah, I'll serve my four years and hope I survive that and get my benefit. I'm not sure why we're so quick to blame service members for their choice to enlist rather than just ask them why they enlisted and understand the human story behind it because you might not have made the same decision yourself or understand the decision. Um, But you can ask and you can get to know why people would make that choice. And I think that's one way that civilians can do a little bit better in the way that we engage with our warriors is to stop treating them as though they are the ones with all the power that are destroying the world because they're not. A lot of times they are manipulated or coaxed by the people with actual power. And so I think when it comes to Operation Iraqi Freedom, Operation Enduring Freedom, Operation New Dawn, the first of which started 18 years ago, civilians, I think, are pretty much out of touch. Most civilians don't even consciously realize that America has been at war for 18 years. And we don't really know what's going on over there. The media does not report on it. We don't ask questions. We'd rather not think about it. And I think that's actually some of the thanks that we owe them is that America has been at war for 18 years and we've been allowed to just go about our day and not be impacted by it because they're over there doing the work keeping the battle away from us. They're sacrificing time with their families and sometimes they're sacrificing their lives to keep the war away from us. During an interview for a film project, a veteran asked me what I believe the biggest challenge veterans faced was. And I could have answered from a political headspace or even a social work perspective, pointing out the resources or funding that veterans could benefit from, because that is true. But the only thing that I could think of was to give the answer that the therapist gets to hear. And when I sit in a room full of veterans and try to talk about life skills and job skills and how to get back on their feet whatever that means, there's something unspoken and pervasive in that room. They feel isolated. They feel misunderstood. They don't even know how to want to re-engage into civilian life because they feel left out of it. They feel confused by it. They feel judged for the burden that they have to carry. Sebastian Younger, uh, he's a journalist who has reported from and documented war zones. He has a TED Talk. He may even have some books. I'm not sure. But he's got this TED Talk where he notes that our lonely individualistic society makes it hard to come back from war. He notes that community care, which I talked about in the in the last episode, the moral injury episode, the community care approach that tribal communities take help diffuse trauma of their veterans by sharing it with them a little bit. And that alone is the resource. When I look at all the resources that we need, especially for our homeless veterans, I wonder if we were a little bit more inclusive of veterans in our culture and a little bit more understanding to their unique needs, if maybe we wouldn't need so many resources to help prevent homelessness and substance use in our veterans, that maybe if we welcomed them back with respect and honor and we understood truly what they experienced as best we can secondhand and accepted them for that and listened to them and made space for them, made space for their language and their way of doing things, um, that maybe we wouldn't be in such the crisis that it seems like we're in right now with homeless veterans. We can beg for money to help veterans. 
from wherever it's supposed to be coming from. But what if we didn't even need that much money? What if instead we just had this shift in our collective and emotional energy where we made space for them? I'm not sure we understand the gravity of their experiences. Um, and I and I believe that we have disconnected from it because it's been an 18-year never-ending war that has no impact on our day-to-day lives in the States. So I don't want to hear about Marines that got killed in the line of duty last week. It, it's depressing. I don't want to look it in the eye. And so we don't, right? Of course, it makes sense why we would want to turn it off. But I hear from these men all the time how difficult it is to open up to civilians to let them know what happened and who they had to become to really be understood. So when this one veteran asked me what I thought the biggest challenge they faced was, I couldn't help but say, civilians. There are other challenges, but those challenges they face are so pervasive in a systemic way, in a collective unconscious way. And it makes me feel so powerless to even begin trying to think about how to stop that freight train. The civilian piece, though, at least feels like it's something we can fix. It feels like something that we have control over something we can do better about with a little bit more awareness and consciousness. Because it's likely that we will always be sending people to war. But we can at least help them return from war with a little bit more support. And I want to be clear that I'm not blaming civilians for the struggles of veterans face. um, Or for the outrageous statistics that demonstrate how much they are suffering. But we don't know how to hold them when they come home. And that's not our fault. Nobody ever taught us what to do about that. And I'm especially not blaming military families. This is not about blame at all, right? This is about what we can learn and implement, how we can understand and empathize more. The different ways that we can all, whether you know veterans or not, create a society that is more inherently welcoming to our warriors. And so I wonder, like, what do we do when our soldiers come home from war? How do we help them reintegrate back into a world that's never going to feel quite the same to them again? And I think, you know, we can learn a little bit from Native American traditions where post-war healing was critical. It was the most it was the most important thing that they did for their warriors. For instance, the Navajo people, they would have a medicine man speak to their warrior about his experiences at war to determine what kind of ritual he needed when he got back. And the goal was to help the warrior return to a state of balance or beauty within nature to recognize that he had to step away from his his nature in order to fulfill the mission. And so how do we get him back into his skin again? Uh, similarly, the Comanche people utilized rituals to support their warriors, sending them off to war with spiritual ceremonies so that they would stay protected in battle. And then when the warriors returned, the tribe restored them to balance with an all-night ceremony, which included peyote, communal song, prayer. It was It was everybody together. In Lakota and Sioux tribes, warriors returned to meet with tribe elders who would apologize to them for what they had to see and do and experience at war. And the elders would express gratitude and bestow honor upon the veterans for making the choice to put the tribe above their own individual needs and survival. A warrior returning from combat commonly struggles to readjust to the world. Uh, that they once knew because it's familiar but it's but it's off something's off and they can easily feel misunderstood by civilians who couldn't possibly empathize with their experiences and our modern american culture it doesn't embrace this need for ritual for the medicine man to help the warrior process his pain for for the warm and respectful embrace of the community and the acknowledgement of the hardship and to to honor them in, in in a sense that by having gone off 
and 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 fought the battle that they are wise and they are strong and they are people that we should now bow to i think we can learn a thing or two from these native traditions and work together as a community to help usher them back home regardless of the burden they carry whether it's ptsd moral injury physical or mental unwellness substance use homelessness guilt grief or any of the other common struggles that uh, that they hold. I'm going to read off some statistics just to kind of catch us up on, on where, where this need is coming from. So there are 18.2 million veterans in the U.S. as of 2018 census data. That's 7.6% of the population. It's not a lot. It's not a lot. And so it makes sense why their needs are not really at the forefront of our culture. But just because it's a small percentage doesn't mean that we don't owe them something. 3.5 million of those 18.2 million veterans served post 9-11 in OEF or OIF. 16.6 million of all era veterans are male. 1.6 million are female. The latest data from the Department of Housing and Urban Development tells us there are 40,000 veterans in the U.S. experiencing homelessness. 11,000 of those are in California. Almost 3,000 in Florida more than 2,000 each in Texas and Washington State, and 1,200 each in Oregon and New York. Nationwide, nearly 1.4 million veterans live in households that use food stamps, about 20,000 of which join the SNAP program while they were still on active duty because their military salary is often not enough to provide food for their family. In fact, food banks are popping up all over the country near bases so that active duty service members can afford to feed their families using donated groceries. In 2018, the U.S. military experienced the highest number of suicides among active duty personnel in at least six years. 321 active duty members total, 57 Marines, 68 sailors, 58 airmen, and 138 soldiers. An approximate 20 veterans kill themselves every day. So even though there's 7.6% of the population, our service members and our veterans are in crisis and they need our help. So like I said before, a lot of veterans enlisted in the military to escape a difficult adolescence. And in the military, they were given orders, they were given structure to follow, expectations for what the consequences would be if they didn't follow those orders, and they were given some sense of stability amidst the chaos. And then, so when they separate from the military... They're left with their first civilian challenge as an adult to figure out all the things that they were never taught about how to survive in a non-military environment. And because of that, too many of them become homeless or incarcerated, which then encourages substance use, creates an inescapable cycle that they can't get out of. Others return home to a world that has no idea who they are now, loved ones who can't understand their experiences and just want everything to be normal again as soon as possible. Many veterans struggle to understand the civilian world uh, that they're now, you know, trying to be a part of or required to subscribe to. Um, some of them are, are struggling to maintain employment because civilian political correctness is really weird and foreign to them and, and useless in their eyes. You know, in the military, you get the job done, direct, immediate communication, done. Nobody gets offended, right? But in many civilian jobs, you have to beat around the bush. You have to compliment people. You have to give feedback sandwiches where you give, you know, the nice, you say the nice thing first, and then you give the part that they need to change, and then you wrap it up with, you know, but you're awesome, right? Um, this is a language that that military veterans are really struggling to understand 
how to implement. They don't understand the purpose that it serves. Um, and that's one way that they're struggling to acclimate. Most veterans will never probably sleep a full night again in their lives, given the traumatic experiences that they've had. This is just the start of it. There are so many things that we take for granted as civilians. And just that alone, that we take them for granted, I think can make readjustment for veterans that much harder. Uh, so, so what if we did acknowledge that these are things that we take for granted and that our veterans might be struggling with? Um, when it comes to PTSD, you know, crowded places can increase a hypervigilance, which is already probably pretty high, um, which is to say that veterans in crowds, they might be constantly scanning faces for threats. They might be feeling unsafe. Driving can cause a veteran stress uh, when they spent an entire deployment trying to avoid IEDs on the roads. Fireworks, however celebratory, can create a combat environment which can re-traumatize a veteran. And it's common and reasonable for a veteran to want to avoid places that maybe they previously loved, but now it's a source of anxiety for them. And military trauma doesn't stop at combat or the abuses of power that erupt in military culture, which is a plenty. A lot of veterans face MST, which is military sexual trauma, based on sexual assault or harassment that happened in duty. According to 2016 Department of Defense data, almost 15,000 service members, 8,600 women, 6,300 men, were sexually assaulted during their service. Most victims were assaulted more than once. 83% of military sexual assault victims did not report the crime. Many rightfully fearing retaliation from their command or coworkers, and others fearing that nothing would be done. And that's a really common story, unfortunately. We don't think of these things, you know. We don't want to. We don't have to. They're not in our face. I get it. But our veterans are carrying a really huge burden, whether they're directly impacted by these things or not. Because in the military, it is about camaraderie. It's about teamwork. It's about the unit. Everybody's got to survive together. You're looking out for other people. And so if something happens to your brother or sister in a line of duty, you're impacted by that as well, even if it hasn't hit you directly. And yes, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to address the injustices that exist within each branch themselves. The fact that people are getting away with this, the fact that the culture permits this, the fact that there is so much abuse of power within the military. That all needs to get fixed. And with it needing to rely so much on masculine shadow in order for the military to be effective, I don't know how that works. I don't know what that looks like. But what we can control is understanding and supporting the, these people when they come back to us. So in my last episode, I talked about moral injury and the implication that it has on a person's soul to act in misalignment to their values and their morals and their beliefs. And as you might imagine, this is a really common occurrence in the military. From the emotional, physical, and mental abuses suffered to the execution of a mission, service members are constantly faced with making decisions that they would never make in any other circumstance. Um, I think we can all relate to that to some degree. So it's important that we hold more compassion for our veterans in this realm, understanding that some part of their trauma isn't so much about fearing for their own lives, but that they got to know the darkest parts of themselves and now have to live with that for the rest of their lives. And I think one of the things that we can do for our veterans is just listen and deal with the discomfort of hearing their truth, because enduring that is the very least that we can do 
to help them. We did not have to face what they have faced, but we can help them feel less alone by not being so scared of their pain or dismissing their pain or just wanting them to just jump back on the saddle and act like it didn't happen. It's really unfair to expect a veteran to simply bounce back to civilian life, uh, to get back into being a parent, to be the partner that you always knew them to be, to not react completely differently to everything from now on, to every new challenge that's placed in front of them. Uh, make some space for their experiences. And that's that's not to say that that isn't difficult, especially for military families, because I think as a, as a community, as a society, we've got to do better about the way we hold and respect our military families too, because they're sacrificing a lot for this country as well. But that's part of why I wanted to start to have this conversation in the space is because it is so relevant when we're talking about feeding the feminine. We, we've got to nurture these guys. We've got to give them some love and some support. And what they're struggling with in part is reconnecting to their emotionality, to their empathy, because not only was it trained out of them, then they had traumatic experience that doubled down on uh, the fact that there's no there's no value or space or time for emotions. But as human beings trying to connect to people again, trying to get back into a civilian purpose, um, they need to reignite that. And that's really hard and terrifying for them. And so it's like they're learning how to walk all over again, but they really, for the most part, have no idea how. And here are some things to avoid. So there's really good intention behind this, and I know this, but, and, and again, I don't speak for all veterans, and, and so maybe don't stop saying this, but maybe just think about this a little bit. So when we say thank you for your service, um, it's, it's, of course, it's, it's meant well. But I would just say that if you're going to say it, have something tangible to back it up with, because otherwise, these words feel really empty to a lot of veterans, because they're struggling. They're trying to reacclimate, and, and it feels impossible, and they feel like they're failing, and they know that civilians really have no idea what the hell's going on in Iraq and Afghanistan and what they're what they're dealing with. And so the thank you for your service starts to feel dismissive. It's like, yeah, thank you for your service. Right. It's, it's I'm supposed to say that that's an obligation that I'm supposed to say to you, but I don't really care about you or what you're struggling with. So maybe in addition to those words of affirmation, there's some way that you can actually offer some support to them. I would really, really caution against asking a veteran if they've killed anybody. So I think it depends on the setting, right? If you're trying to create an environment where you're saying, I'm open to hearing what your experience was. I want to know what you went through and I can handle it because uh, I, I want you to be able to share that, not because you want to relive it, but because you are reliving it anyway. It's, it's inside of your body and you are somebody that I care about and I, I don't want you to have to carry that secret around for the rest of your life. So if you want to talk to me about it, talk to me about it, right? But when we ask veterans, oh, have you killed anybody? Um, I don't think it's meant with harmful intent and maybe we're just, you know, morbidly curious, but put yourself in their shoes because there's no good way to answer that question. And it's understandable for a veteran to feel even a little bit exploited by that question because you could very easily take that intimate information and never see them the same way again. I mean, this is a question that will now define them to you forever but that you don't actually really have context for because you've never been in the situation that they've been in. You've never had to defend yourself that way or see the things that they've seen or feel the degree of intensity against your survival that they've seen. Warriors have to make really hard choices. And I think the best way to let them know that you are able and willing to hear about those hard choices is to say, you know, I understand that I can never understand what you've been through. And 
I'm not going to pretend that it would be easy to hear what you experienced over there. But I don't want you to feel like you have to be ashamed of this or that you have to hide this or that it would make me uncomfortable to hear what you experienced. It may make me uncomfortable, but that's okay. I can endure that for you so that you're not suffering in silence with this. Invite them into that conversation and then give them space because they may not be ready and they may never be ready. But maybe even just putting that out there might make them feel a little bit closer to you and a little bit less like they have to isolate because they're misunderstood. I think uh, another thing to avoid is just expecting them to pick up where they left off. And again, military families go through a lot while their loved ones are deployed or on active duty. There is no question about that. And we need to do better to support the families of service members who sacrifice so much for this country. So it's understandable that these families who have had to keep living their lives in the absence of a parent or a partner or a friend, they're anxious for things to get back to normal. But I think the important piece is to accept that there's a new normal now. We expect them to know how to love us again. And sometimes they can't. Sometimes they can't love themselves anymore, at least not how they used to. And I think a lot of times, too, they they look at the drama of civilian life and they think, because it, it pales in comparison to what they've had to experience, that they're looking at us like, why, why are you guys blowing things out of proportion so much? Nobody's dying. There's no threat here. And so sometimes there's that just basic misunderstanding of the way that we, we react to things. It's going to be really different. I think given, you know, the statistics of suicide with regard to active duty service members and veterans alike, um, one thing that we can, I think we can all do this for everybody, really. I think if, if, if all civilians, if all people, whether or not you personally have struggled with suicidal ideation or you know somebody who has, I think if we all become a little bit more familiar with what um, warning signs of, of suicidal thoughts are, we can be a little bit more helpful to the people around us. And that's not to say that that's Um, our responsibility or our burden or that it's our fault if somebody that we know and love takes their own lives. But another way that we can just sort of meet them in this community space and say, I understand you and I know what to look for. And so I can try to intervene if I see these things. Um, Obviously, our veterans are going to have different warning signs um, for suicide than, than a civilian will. For veterans, you know, these warning signs can include feelings of hopelessness, Uh, that there's no reason to live, withdrawing from friends and family, frequent talk of death, contemplation of ways to kill oneself, self-destructive or high-risk behaviors. But keep in mind that combat veterans may inherently be drawn to high-risk behaviors given their familiarity with hyper-arousal. So Getting a little bit of a deeper understanding of the complexities of combat experiences and PTSD can be helpful. Anger and rage are also connected to PTSD, uh, sleeplessness, anxiety, mood swings, isolation. So while these behaviors may not necessarily indicate imminent risk of suicide, uh, they still may require some help. The VA does offer some resources online, but you can also seek out therapeutic support for yourself or for your veteran um, to help bridge the gap because there's a lot that can be processed in there and a lot of skills and tools that can be that can be provided to help mitigate some of the the crisis that can come up. So veterancrisisline.net has a resource locator um, which can help veterans in crisis. 
The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline actually has VA-linked responders who can help provide support related to the military experience for veterans or service members in crisis. And that phone number is 800-273-8255. That's actually the same number as the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. But if you dial that number and press 1, you will get the Veteran Crisis Line, which is veteran-specific help. So as citizens, I think that there are little maybe tweaks and changes here that we can make to help make the transition a little bit easier, even if it is just being aware of the depth and the gravity of what they've experienced and and that they're still holding it with them. It doesn't just go away just because they're back. And I think that this is one incarnation where we can connect the masculine and feminine to provide support to those who wear our nation's uniform, where we can meet them where they're at so they don't feel so alone. Harnessing our feminine for them can actually go a longer way than maybe we even expect because even if the feminine was trained out of our military members, they're still human. They still emote. They still yearn to connect. It doesn't just go away, but it doesn't feel safe for them anymore given the experiences that they've had. So we can meet them there. We can acknowledge and respect and honor that they don't feel safe. We can show them compassion. We can help them reconnect to their own compassion. We can listen to them without prying, but also without glossing over their pain and their confusion and the nuances of what they've experienced. And we can consider their unique needs and think twice about the environments that we create that ignore those needs. We can read more about their service. We can be patient with them and not expect them to be who they were before they enlisted. We can donate clothing. We can donate food and other critical resources to local organizations that serve homeless veterans. There's a lot more that we can do. And there are more resources to follow. Stay tuned to The Hungry Feminine. I'm going to continue to talk about this and and provide resources as um, I continue my research to, because I think, I think we're constantly learning about new things that we can be doing to help these folks. But I do just want to close out by saying that if you are or know a service member or veteran in crisis, you can contact the Military Crisis Line at 800 273 8255. You can press one for military specific assistance, or you can just hang on the line for non VA linked responders. You can also text 838255 or chat with them online at veterancrisisline.net. The support there is free and confidential. As always, thank you for listening, for showing up. I hope that maybe you got something from this. And if you want to continue the conversation, you can reach out to me through Instagram or Facebook at The Hungry Feminine. You can visit thehungryfeminine.com and you can email me at thehungryfeminine at gmail.com. 